All right, well, we're glad you're here again. And if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. After my message last week, someone had asked a very good question. And next week, we will continue our study of the book of Daniel chapter 8. So if you'd like to read ahead, please do so. And uh, we will pick that up next week. But this question is a question that I've gotten several times over the years. It is a question concerning the issue of trust. And in verse 7 of chapter 17 of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaves will be green, and will not be anxious in years of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. When it comes to trusting God, which is a dynamic that we looked at last week, someone asked a question that I think deserves an answer. How shall I cultivate that trust with God? It's a It's a question that you really need to consider if you are going to be um, prepared for what is going to come next. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean by anything that comes next. Anything at all. Good things, bad things alike require us to have a trust in the Lord to to weather whatever does come next. I say good things because if you notice throughout the Old Testament, the children of Israel often fell the greatest during times of prosperity, times of blessing. Do you know I find that that is often the time that most Christians walk away from God is when things are going good because they don't feel that they need God. And like the children of Israel, they were misinterpreting their circumstances to believe that God was for them in their sin because He continued to bless them. As they worshipped other gods, He didn't immediately bring about judgment. So they thought God was for them. And they continued on in their sin. We have to be ready for prosperity as much as we are ready for persecution. I am very concerned that when we seek to return to normal here in America, that many Christians will once again, throughout the body of Christ within America, turn once again to apathy, carnality, and complacency. The context that we are currently in is not one that I wish or wanted, but I have seen many Christians lean into God like never before. And I pray that that is something that continues, even if prosperity or blessing come our way. Unfortunately, history often tells us that it's the opposite result. So we have to trust God when things go good. But when things go bad, especially for us here in America, we often react as if we are blindsided by these circumstances We didn't expect them because we originally had the idea that God in some way was here to provide all of my wants, to make everything rosy, to keep me from any type of heartache and any type of uh, excruciating circumstance. Often when I hear pastors teach or evangelists give the gospel, it's often come to God for what He can do for you rather than understand what God would have from you your life, laying it down as a living sacrifice. And yet Jesus told us very clearly that to follow Him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after Him. So when we enter in Christianity with the wrong expectations, then we often are triggered by the circumstances that we experience. And if they are negative then we feel in some way, somehow, God has let us down. And in 2021, those who I've spoken with, who have walked away from God, often conclude by saying, I tried it, and He, it just didn't work for me. Really? 
So how do we cultivate, and I use that word often, because I believe that what we see throughout the Bible are terms of an agrarian society. Do you ever notice that when the gospel is spoken about, it's spoken about as seed that is planted, that is watered, that is reaped? Here we try to create pragmatic formulas of the Scripture, saying that if we take this verse plus this verse, then we'll get this outcome. But often God works just the opposite. And He does so that your faith may increase. If we simply had formulas in which to apply, methodologies which we could adapt and apply to our lives to bring the outcomes that we are seeking, then Christianity would be a mere self-help faith or religion. But Christianity is a relationship with God that is cultivated over time that we grow deeper in each and every day and come to the place where our trust will allow us to stand in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. But how do we gain that trust? How do we grow in that trust? That is the question that we are looking to seek to answer this morning. Notice what Jeremiah says here in our text. He uses the word blessed. Now often when this word is defined, they go to the uh, Sermon of the Mount where Jesus said blessed is, and they talk about the degree of happiness that comes from doing these things or fulfilling these things and so forth. Happiness or joy more specifically is a dimension of this word. It's an aspect of this word. But it talks more in the Old Testament context and definition as favor. God's favor upon you. God's favor upon those who trust Him. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So this component of trust is very important to realize or to actualize the idea of being blessed by God. The problem that so many struggle with today is, how do I trust God? And then the question is begged, is this word trust interchangeable with the word faith? Or is there a different element to it altogether? Or can they be used synonymously with one another? These are questions that I have found that Christians are not clear upon, but are essential for the health of our Christian life. So as we come to this verse this morning, notice that the favor and the blessing, the aspect of joy that we seek to discover, comes to one who trusts the Lord. Now the word trust there is actually defined by the word that follows it, in the Lord. It is those who trust the Lord. Now trust can be attached to anything like faith. Trust can be attached to material things, money, uh, relationships that we have with other people here on this earth. All of these things can uh, uh, require our trust. Of course, we know that a marriage, if it's going to be healthy, must be a trustworthy marriage. You have to trust your spouse if you're going to feel secure in that marriage, correct? Otherwise, you're going to continuously vacillate in a position of insecurity. What are they doing? Who are they with? Where are they going? And there's this insecurity that never allows the relationship to grow if you're always concerned about what they are doing because of your lack of trust towards them. Now think about God. How is it possible for us to grow and go forward if we are constantly vacillating in our relationship with God because we're insecure, because we haven't come to the point where we trust Him? That He knows better than I do. That He has a perfect plan and purpose for my life and that He knows me better than I know myself. 
Those are significant statements. But it's only until you relinquish those things into the hand of God that you can truly trust Him to this degree to allow Him to move you and to lead you forward. But there's another result. Notice what Jeremiah says next. For he, that is the one who trusts, shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and will not be anxious in the years of drought. The tree is on sure-footed. It's healthy. It's growing. It's alive. It is, it is so because of its attachment to the water that it is near. The source of its life. That is the relationship that God is looking for between you and I. He wants us to be attached to Him in, such, in a, such a way that we are drawing from Him and Him alone. If we believe that anything in this world, including people, are able to provide for us what only God can provide for us, we are going to be greatly disappointed. We must draw from Him the fountain of living water. And therefore, allowing us to be healthy, alive, growing, fruitful, and prepared. Prepared for whatever comes next. Prepared for those things that we did not anticipate, but now we are confronted by. These are the things that I hope to prepare you with this morning. We don't know what's going to happen in 2022, do we? We have no idea. Dean and I were sitting on our couch. We were watching the lousy New Year's Eve show from Chicago. I'm convinced we could do something better here at this church than these major networks do in Chicago. It, it, was, it was just terrible. You know, I, I was embarrassed. I, I see what other cities I do. I, I see, you know, I think Topeka, Kansas had one better than we did. But going into the new year, we looked at each other and said, yeah, I'm not even going to set an expectation. I have no idea what's going to happen next. I love some of the memes that I saw on social media this week, anticipating what's going to happen next. Pictures of monsters coming through the door and, you know, things uh, falling apart even further. The rise of the empire, Darth Vader, and, you know, all these other things. We have no idea what to expect. But we do know some things to be true. The Lord is coming back. And probably sooner than we think. We also know that He is sovereign and He is still in control. We also know that with Him, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And no matter what happens here on this earth, nothing in Him changes. He's immutable. There's a lot of confidence that we can have to allow our trust in Him to grow. But that being said, let us know and understand that that trust means something very important to us. It sustains us as we go through these times, regardless of what they are. Notice with me that the word trust here is associated with so much. Being blessed, being planted, being rooted, without fear, without anxiety, being healthy, and being fruitful are all found in these verses. So how do we gain that trust? That's what I want to explore this morning. I want to give you six points, if I may, quickly, to help you cultivate your trust with God this year. I believe that they are found from Genesis to Revelation, six principles that I believe the Word of God outlines for us very naturally to help us learn how to trust God. And that's exactly what we need to do. We need to learn to trust God. One person once said, and I don't know who to attribute this to, that trust can take 30 years to earn and 30 seconds 
to lose. So we must be very careful. But if we are going to be very practical, how can I begin to build that trust with God? Now, it initially appears that the trust in the Lord is just automatically required of those who follow Him. But as I read from Genesis to Revelation, I find that the apostles, the individuals of the Old Testament, all grew in their trust in the Lord. They started out in one place, and by the end of their life, they were someplace else. Those who did not grow found themselves to be in places of difficulty quite often. But those who did enjoyed the benefits that God would bless them with. So how do we grow in our trust? First of all, we have to understand that it is a process of growing. It isn't going to happen just overnight. It never does. The number of married couples that I have married as a pastor, I have seen that over the years... I've watched their relationships develop from the couple that sat across from me, that, uh, you know, across from my desk in premarital counseling, to the couples that they are 15, 20 years later. And certainly their relationship with each other has grown. They often will say, We love each other now more than we did then. We know each other better now than we ever had before. We understand each other better now than we did when we first got married. A relationship with God is something that we grow into. So I'm going to help you in that endeavor this morning. Number one, we must begin with truth. If we are going to have any trust relationship with God, it must begin on the foundations of truth. Our world tells us that truth is incredibly relative. Your truth doesn't necessarily need to be my truth. And the concept of absolute truth, of course, has been absolutely obliterated by the world. That there are these absolutes in life that we can stand upon. Our culture, our world has absolutely, if I may use that again, done everything to distort, to change the fundamental, foundational institutions of our society, haven't they? The church, marriage, the family, etc. There has to be a foundation of truth. And that begins with knowing and understanding the Word of God. As a Christian, if I'm going to dive into the pool of seeking truth, I must start with the source of truth itself, who Jesus said is himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That being said, the truth that the Bible offers us is often going to be in great contradiction to the truth that the world seems to embrace. And there's one distinct difference between the truth of Scripture and the truth of our world. The truth of Scripture is what I would call static. It stays the same. It remains the truth from Genesis to Revelation. Christ embodied the truth in His own personal life and ministry as being God Himself. If we do not enter into a relationship with God on the basis of truth, we are constantly going to be vacillating in many areas of our Christianity that are so imperative for us, mainly our salvation in Him. We have to understand how God saves us, why God saves us, and keeps us saved. This is very important. When Paul talked about the whole armor of God, he talked about the helmet of salvation. The helmet protecting the person's head, the mind of the individual. Not allowing doubt and vacillation to sweep us away in our endeavor to walk with the Lord. So we must be secure in our salvation. Now I am asked yearly 
if I believe that I can, if a person, a Christian, can lose their salvation. I think words are important, especially when they're associated with theology. I do not believe an individual can lose their salvation, but I do believe an individual can be in the presence of God's people, in the presence of God, and not have salvation. 1 John 2.19 tells us a very uh, clear statement. When John wrote, he said, They have departed from us, showing us that they were never of us. For if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But since they no longer are with us, they would show that they were truly never of us. Never of us. When Jesus said to those before him, in Matthew 7.21, he said to them, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things in your name? And he looked, what did he say? I never knew you. It's not that I knew you at one time and then you did something. It's that I never knew you. So understanding our salvation in Jesus Christ is imperative. Now the Bible tells us explicitly that there are those who will appear to be Christians, but in actuality they will apostate and they will turn from God. And I think we're seeing that in the body of Christ currently. But if I can lose my salvation, then the question then becomes, what did I do to earn my salvation? And if I can lose my salvation, what is it that I have to do to do that? When asking those questions of those who believe that, they say, well, you know, God only knows your heart and so forth. Or they'll say to me, you know, if you walk away from God, and I said, certainly, if one walks away from God, I believe it demonstrated that they were never truly of God just as John explained. Now, does that mean that I believe that every person who's prayed a prayer and then has gone back into the world and has no heart for God whatsoever is a Christian and saved? No, I don't believe so. God says you'll know them by their fruit, what's produced by their life. If a person has received, apparently received Jesus Christ and yet has no heart for the things of God, the people of God, uh, His Word, holiness, righteousness, there's a problem that would arise. A red flag that would occur. Now some will ask, are they just simply backslidden or were they truly never saved? Well, I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know how their life is going to end. And as long as they have the opportunity to repent, they can repent and establish that relationship with God once again. But this is the way we must begin if we're going to learn to trust God. Number one, in seeking the truth, we must know, number one, who God is. Number two, understand our salvation. Number three, who we are in God. Number four, the context of Christianity from Genesis to Revelation. And number five, understanding the unchanging uh, tenets of the Christian faith. This is where it all starts, truth. It's interesting to me that so many in our world, including ourselves, don't trust anyone or any institution anymore. Is it because those institutions have not warranted their trust? Yes, Is it not true that those institutions have vacillated and changed the playing field and the goalposts so many times that we don't know what end is up? Yes. But God is not like that. And we must not look to the world for truth if we are going to establish a deep trust relationship in God. We can't. We must look to Him. Number one, we must seek the truth. Jesus said it this way, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Those who hear these words and do them, I liken to a man who builds his house on the rock. And when the storms of life come, the house stands. But those who do not, I liken to a man, a foolish man, who builds his house on the sand. And when the storms of life come, what what occurs? What happens? The house falls, and great is its fall. We must Begin with truth. 
Number two, we must confess our unbelief. One of my favorite stories in the Gospel is found in Mark chapter 9. It has to do with a man who comes to Jesus' disciples whose son is demon-possessed. They're incapable of casting those demons out. And Jesus then comes to them, challenges the, the depth of their faith, and then looks to the dad and says, you know, do you believe? And he says, oh yes, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. That is such an honest statement. But what did he mean by that? What was he saying? Well, people differ on their interpretation of this verse. One interesting interpretation are those who would say that this verse is saying, yes, Lord, I believe you can do it. I just don't know if you're willing to do it. That's an interesting insight. And often when I talk to believers in Jesus Christ who are going through difficult times, they're thoroughly convinced that God can do it. They just don't know if God will do it. And you say, well, how can we know if God will do it? His Word, truth, the promises that He has made to us, the aspects of His character that contribute to our understanding of who He is and who we are in Him, our identity in Jesus Christ. But when this dad came to Jesus... The possession he loved the most, his son, was in a crucial position. And the disciples had failed to fulfill what the father had requested. And so Jesus now steps in. We must be willing to confess our limitations, to be honest with ourselves before God concerning our limitations. I have often said to God, Lord, I don't know how we're going to get through this. And he, I believe he often just lays it on my heart. Yeah, you don't, but I do. And you know what? We get through it. I then became more mature in my Christian life, and I began to give God options. Lord, here's what I'm facing with. Now you have choice A, B, or C. I'm good with any of the three. You just let me know which one works for you. And it's always D. None of the above. Because God will do things, again, according to His truth, again, according to His nature, He is going to work everything out to bring Him the greatest degree of glory. To reassure me in my heart that it's not me who has done it. That I had nothing to do with it. But God did everything. We must acknowledge our limitations before God. And in so doing, we're not being a bad Christian, but in so doing, we're also inviting God to begin to work in our lives. And how does He work in our lives? By bringing us into circumstances that will stretch our faith, that will stretch our trust. Did you ever pray, Lord, help me love people as you do? Sounds very majestic and, you you know, spiritual and so... And then you're surrounded by people who absolutely hate you. Or you pray for patience. That's another one that I won't go to anymore. And then you find out that God often has you wait. Well, you prayed for patience. Well, yeah, but I didn't want to wait around for that. And God often brings us into circumstances that will draw it out of us, shape us, mold us into what He is doing. But the beginning of that is our honest confession to God. Help me to grow in you. And then be prepared for what comes next. Number three. We need to remember each and every day of this new year as we seek truth and allow that truth to penetrate our hearts, to bring our confessions before the Lord in our limitations, and our understanding of our personal limitations before Him. Number three, we then each and every day must continue spending time with God for the purpose of perspective, if I may. 
Did you ever notice how many in the Bible, from Genesis, I know we're talking macro terms, we're, we're summing up biblical theology, Genesis to Revelation, by the, all the occurrences and experiences of the people there in the texts. But did you ever notice the number of people who have approached God in prayer in panic, and then after spending time with Him, they leave in peace? In fact, this is exactly what Paul capitalizes on in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. When he says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication, make your request be made known to God with thanksgiving, and God shall uh, give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. That surpasses, you know, our mind and our intellect and so forth. I think of David in the Psalms, how many times he began the psalm in panic or desperation, anxiety, or fear. And then spending some time with God, he then changes. And by the end of the psalm, he now sees things in a complete and utterly new light. Why is that? We always become worried, panic, fearful, anxiety-ridden when we look at our challenges, when we look at our circumstances in the light of our own limitations and the light of our own abilities. Spending God, time with God changes that perspective. It allows me to see those things through Him. And you know what? God is always bigger. God is always capable. There's nothing too big for God. I love the quote that I heard, I heard this year. Uh, I'm sorry, last year. I'm not going to get used to that anytime soon. How many of you have already written 21 at the end of dating something already? I have. Okay, I guess nobody else has. All right. Um, With God, there's never problems, always plans. With God, there are never problems, there are always plans. I love that. But spending time with God allows me to see whatever I'm looking at through His ability, through His promises, through His Word, through His truth. And my perspective changes. Now, I don't know how He's going to do it the majority of the time, but I know He can. And the Word of God tells me that He's willing and that I just simply need to be patient. And often allow Him to work things out. Now, in saying that, I am not negating the responsibilities that the Word of God lays out for us as individuals. I'm simply saying that when something comes across our path that we are incapable of overcoming in and of ourselves, and we have been responsible, and we continue being responsible in what God says for us, then I can trust Him to work it out. And allow myself, as this tree planted by the water, notice what it says here. It will not fear. It is not anxious. It is healthy. And it is fruitful. And notice that all of this is derived from verse 8 when it says it spreads out its roots by the river. That's the growing process that allows us to continue moving forward and allowing God to work. Number four. This year, if I may say this, and I don't often say this, this will change your life. Each and every day, look for things in your life to be grateful for. And let those things fill your mind and heart. Notice what God is doing. Notice what God has done. Consider what God is still yet going to do that is given to us by the Word of God. Knowing that even as our society moves more and more into a chaotic position, God is still on the throne and it's all going to play out exactly the way He said it was going to. Nothing is going to stifle that or thwart that in any way. Dina challenged me with this last year, as I had mentioned. She keeps a thankfulness journal, a grateful journal, of things that she is continuously grateful for. And it changes your attitude. 
And I'm not talking about positive confession or speaking things into reality. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm simply saying is let us not miss what God is doing simply because we're focused on those things that we feel that God has still not yet accomplished. And I found that each and every day I could always find something to praise God for. I think this is consistent. Remember I quoted Philippians about Paul saying, let us be thankful in all things. Now he writes to the Thessalonians. It should be on the screen behind you in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Notice what he says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Be thankful for what God is doing and what God has blessed you with. Number five. We as Christians must once again regain an understanding of the Holy Spirit. I am growing ever so concerned that more and more churches are moving away from what I call a definitive theological position of the Holy Spirit. As I've said in the past, you read statements of faith and they have God and God the Father, Jesus Christ. They have soteriology. They have eschatology, ecclesiology. Um, They have all of these things. And then when it comes to the Holy Spirit... It's often one of the most ambiguous statements I've ever seen. And some think that they're letting the Spirit out too much, and others think that they're restraining the Spirit too much. The Holy Spirit's work in the church is not a mystery. In the sense that it's hidden from us, the Word of God tells us exactly what the Spirit of God is doing amongst the church. But also, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am exhorted, commanded to walk in the Spirit. Therefore, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. This is where our personal responsibility is addressed. We live in a society today that no one wants to take responsibility for one's actions, do they? In fact, some in our society have taken what I call the Pee-wee Herman position. The Pee-wee Herman position is instead of admitting that they are wrong, they will say, I meant to do that. And I see this happening, and our politicians have just absolutely perfected this response. As people see now the disaster that has happened over the last two years and they're calling it out and they're re-looking at everything and redefining everything and they're changing all the guidelines that we've had for the last two years. You know, everybody quarantined for 10 days. Oh, it's not working for some of the unions. Five? Do I hear five? (laughs) I could go on and on about that. It's just... It's silly. I mean, it's absolutely becoming silly. Denmark is preparing, if I read correctly, six doses of the vaccine. Six. When do we say that maybe this isn't working well? Or at least not to the way we expected it. But taking ownership and personal responsibility, nobody wants to take responsibility for their actions anymore. And here's the other thing that really gets me. I'm I'm just going to vent a little bit since it's a therapy session this morning. Why is it that those who are responsible individuals always become responsible for those who are irresponsible in their lives? This is something that's getting at me. The number of young adults living in irresponsible fashions, and simply expecting their parents to be responsible for them. Son, grow up. You're 30. Get out of the basement. Do something with your life. 
I know you felt that that Chick-fil-A or Chipotle career was going to lead you somewhere. But they're stuck. And it's becoming really difficult for parents today. But we as Christians are always called to be responsible. And we are to be responsible by being obedient to the Word of God. And this is so important, that we walk in the Spirit not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Being responsible as Christians before God. And by doing so, we then know that we're walking in the will of God and can be confident that God is going to work things out. That I haven't been irresponsible in an area of my life and what I'm currently experiencing isn't chastisement from God. But it's simply a trial that I am walking through that God will see me through to the other side and He's brought it about for the purpose of my betterment. And even the consequences to our sin God still uses to better us. But often He wants to spare us from those consequences to allow us to be free from those things. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. As Christians, we must walk in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, those lusts, those sins, therefore bringing consequences into our lives, provoking the chastening of God upon our lives, We must walk in righteousness with God. Not to earn or maintain our salvation, but in light of our salvation. And lastly, if I may close with this, this is the hardest one, so be ready. Especially for those amongst us who are impatient. The key in developing trust with God is this. And again, this is a study of individuals from Genesis to Revelation. Individuals that have succeeded and also failed. Number six in our cultivating a trust, deep trust relationship with the Lord is waiting on God. This is imperative. Throughout the Bible, individuals have been given promises by God And those promises often require a time of waiting before those promises are fulfilled. Now, in those times of waiting is when we become tempted to take things into our own hands. I think of Abraham, of course. Where Abraham and Sarah were given the promise of a child being given to them directly by God, who would be their heir, who would be, of course one who would proceed uh, or, or succeed Abraham and then proceed the children of Israel. But Sarah grew impatient and encouraged Abraham, who then perfectly submitted to it. He lived by the happy wife, happy life motto. Laid with Hagar, had a child, Ishmael, And as a result, drew on consequences that God never intended. And through the lineage of Ishmael became the Islamic nations of today. It didn't have to happen that way. If Abraham would have simply waited on God. And there are numerous examples of this throughout the the Bible. Where instead of waiting on God patiently to fulfill that which He has promised, we take things into our own hands and make a greater mess of things. Now, I always feel that I have to compensate or balance every statement like that with saying again, I do not believe this negates our personal responsibilities, but I do believe that there is appropriate times where we wait on God to do what God wants to do. Let me give you an example. 
Back in the mid-2000s, we were offered this building for purchase. We were a small church. We were doing well. But we certainly didn't have the money to obtain this building. And there were many churches in the area who were taking advantage of the what I call free money that was being offered through all different types of lending outfits. There were mortgage brokers popping up everywhere. It was the beginning of the housing boom that led to the bubble that led to the collapse in 2008. And we just didn't have the ability to enter in to this building to purchase it we would have had to overstretch ourselves in so many ways to do so. And so we simply took a step back and said, no, I'm sorry, we're going to have to decline. We just don't have the resources to do that. And we just left it to God and we continued to look for other facilities around. But then the collapse happened in 2008. And in 2008 the owners next door bought this building from that guy who was selling it. And they paid an exorbitant amount of money for this property. Then by 2010, they realized that the property wasn't going to be able to be developed due to the collapse in the manner in which they were hoping to develop the property. And so now they began to look for a church that needed a building. And we were a church looking for a building. And we entered into this building that was offered to us many years earlier. And we have now been here for 10 years. And still, as a church, after 25 years, we are debt-free as a church. Because God did it. When the village of Algonquin in 2010 said, nope, We don't want a church in there. We said, oh, okay, well, let's start the petitions. Let's vote them out of office. Let's picket Village Hall here at Algonquin. We prayed. So, Lord, if you want us to have it, then you'll open the door. And I did what every good Christian did. I went to Florida, to Disney World. Lord, okay, I can't do anything about this, and... So I came back from Florida and there was an email in my inbox saying that the village had done a complete 180 while I was gone. See what happens when you go to the kingdom instead of worrying about things? I'll let you wrestle with that yourself. At the end of last year, again, they wanted to sell the building at a price that we could not afford. And we said, okay, Lord, I can't do anything about it. And he put it up for sale in 2019. The plague hit, 2020. No buyers, nobody interested. January 26th of 2021, I got a text. Are you interested in staying at the building? Sure. And in October, we signed a new lease. God has showed me over and over and over again that every need that I have, He will provide. He'll do it His way so He gets all the glory and puts us in the best position possible. That's what God does when you wait on Him. Some of you may be waiting, and that waiting can be very difficult. Let me encourage you. God is never in a hurry. His timing is always perfect. If you can trust Him in that, the waiting becomes easier. In Isaiah 40, 31, Isaiah writes, he says, But to those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like an eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. As the psalmist writes, he wrote in Psalm 34, 17, The righteous cries out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of their 
troubles. And in closing this morning, after those six things, and I'll quickly repeat them for you. Number one, let us seek truth this year to be the foundation of our trust relationship with God. Number two, let us confess unbelief. Even in the life of Jeremiah, he got so frustrated that he just stopped preaching. He didn't want to do it anymore. He was finished. And then God burned his heart and he came back and realized that's exactly what God wanted him to do, even though he didn't see the results on the ground. Confess your unbelief. Number three, remember to spend time with Him, God, that is, every single day for the changing of your perspective. Number four, look for things always to be grateful for. Look for things that God is doing. Things that you can be grateful for. And allow those things to lead you to rejoice always. Number five, walk in the Spirit of God. Not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. And number six, wait on the Lord. Allow Him to do it in His timing. He's never in a rush. He's never late. He's always perfect. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the plans and purposes that He has for you. And if you will submit to Him, He will allow those things to unfold before you. And lastly, I give you these last verses for this year. To keep with you, to guard your heart and mind as we start this New Year's together here at Calvary. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16.20, He who heeds the word wisely will find good. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Of course, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. And lastly from the psalmist, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in You. These are verses, take them to heart this year. Because in 2022, whatever we face will require us to trust in the Lord. And I hope that these six things have helped you. If you have any questions, you may feel free free to ask. But I want to encourage you that as Christians, spend time in God's Word each and every day. Spend time in prayer each and every day with the Lord alone and with your family. It is in that time that God speaks to us deeply and shows us what He has for us.